Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing well, and I know that I am I should wait a minute to say this, but I'm going to say it right now. I'm really excited about our <laughs> guest today because she's a really good friend of mine and an awesome scientist, and I'm really excited to have Dr. Tracy Whitty on today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm 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 equally equal parts excited um, by having Dr. Whitty on, as well as... It was in the 20s today in Fargo. Very balmy. So it, I know I've, I've kind of had this recurring weather update ever since we were at like negative 30. So that's been very pleasant. It has. Especially yesterday, there was a lot of heavy snow and we mm-hmm. actually had some sunshine today. So oh, I, yeah. I thought it was a nice day. How are you doing, Tracy? Very good. Um, it was 70 degrees here in Alabama. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just went for a nice evening walk in a t-shirt. How delightful for you. <laughs> I will look forward to doing the same in six months. <laughs> yes, for one day. <laughs> yes, for the, for, for, uh, we call it spring, summer, fall. It comes around once a year. It's a special time. Well, um, as I said, I, we're just really excited to have today's special guest on. Dr. Tracy Whitty, who, as I mentioned, we were in graduate school together. She was the lab printer monitor. I don't know if Ooh, you knew that, Brad. That is, I did not know that. <laughs> we, we assigned responsibilities. I was in charge of, which probably won't surprise anyone, uh, kind of the website social media aspect, but social media wasn't that big then, so it wasn't that big uh, of a task. Um, you Were you an, you were kind of like an influencer then? Well, like an Instagram I don't know influencer? that I influenced anything successfully, but I think that was the goal. Okay. And Tracy's, it was really important to be able to print the paper and keep the paper stocked. And I'll tell you what she delivered with her responsibilities. So I, have, I have to inquire, is that the kind of is that what the duties consisted of was just stocking it up or monitoring how much people printed or kind of a combination i have to ask it was really the paper and the toner yeah i mean oh, yeah, this the was <laughs> the early 2000s when printing things on hard copies was much more important than it right. is today so. gotcha that's right. I forgot about the toner, which was also an issue. And oh, yeah. I, but I don't. The monitor made it sound more like Tracy was watching people for misuse. That's what I thought. Like, like Dwight Schrute or yes, something, like a volunteer. Was, yes. It wasn't a. It wasn't a situation like that. Um, but what Tracy did say she would do, and I wonder if you did this. You said you were going to put it on your CV. Did that last <laughs> on your CV? <laughs> no, I was just trying to remember. What- when I took it off, oh. <laughs> I don't know if it was before or after I got <laughs> the, the other thing I'll mention about our lab is that Meet the Parents was kind of, I don't remember what year that came out, but it must have come out sometime when we were in grad school because for a while there were uh, a, a group of us that called each other the Circle of Trust. Mm-hmm. And it started out in kind of like a joking way, like we're just going to talk about I mean, it, it was mostly research stuff, to be honest with you. But we ended up getting shirts, oh, <laughs> COT yeah. shirts. And then um, Kim Van Orden, who was also in the Circle of Trust, actually started putting in her dedications um, kind of ways to signal gratitude to the Circle of Trust. So it was kind of a nice really a nice cool. grad school thing that happened. Yeah. That's nice. I th- I, yeah, some, some nice reminiscing. Yeah. And now mm-hmm. we'll get to what Tracy does, which people might be more interested in if they weren't in the same lab as me. Um, Tracy is an associate professor of clinical psychology who does really fascinating research on suicidal behavior. And today we're going to talk to her about some of the research that she's done among veterinarians and other groups. And we thought we'd just start out by asking about your personal story of how you got into clinical psychology and the specific research areas that you focus on. Yeah, so... um... 
Thank you very much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and talk about my work and kind of the the way that I got involved in clinical psychology. I was trying to remember back to when I made that decision and I think it was pretty soon after I started undergraduate uh, my undergraduate training at Ohio State. So I'm kind of weird in that I right away my first year of undergrad decided I wanted to get my PhD in clinical psych and got involved in a research lab, a health psychology lab at the time. Um, and then my second year as an undergrad, I got involved in a um, suicide hotline and volunteered there for my remaining three years of college. So I, I was getting some research experience and then some more clinical experience answering hotline calls um, and got really fascinated by um, suicidal behavior and, and it started out as more of like an academic fascination in that I thought, you know, this is arguably one of the worst outcomes for mental health, yet we know so little about how to predict it, how to stop it. Um, so I was interested in that intellectual problem, but then I also got more emotionally invested in it as I got experience on the suicide hotline. Um, and then I worked actually with Brad Schmidt, who later became a professor at Florida State University. He was at Ohio State when I was there, did an undergraduate thesis with him looking at day-to-day -day fluctuations in suicidal ideation um, in multiple suicide attempters, and then uh, started working with Thomas Joyner um, after I graduated from undergrad and kind of the rest was history there. I got, um, that was where Katie and I met and, um, that was where I really got my research career going during grad school. Yeah. Thanks for that recap. If I recall correctly, we first met cause you stayed with me on interview weekend, oh, yes. which was <laughs> yes, really fun. Right. And as a thank you for hosting, you gave me some Ohio state Buckeye chocolate peanut oh. butter candy, which was wow, good very memory. good. It was really good candy, <laughs> so it really it stood out in oh, my yes, mind. <laughs> it's it's good. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned your thesis, and if you don't mind mm -hmm. telling us, um, so you're talking about people who've had multiple suicide attempts, mm -hmm. and I've found it really interesting in this area and really important to think about with suicidal thoughts, the idea that the intensity of the desire changes, and when it's at mm -hmm. its peak or most severe intensity, that's really a crisis when the person is, is most at risk for dying by suicide. So what were the main findings in your thesis about fluctuation? Oh, gosh, this is going way back. But um, from really what we found is we were comparing people with a history of multiple attempts, single attempt, and then no suicide attempts. These were undergraduates um, that were screened to, and, and identified on the basis of their history of suicidal behavior. Um, and then we had them complete daily measures of their suicide ideation, hopelessness, and depression for six weeks. Um, and this was back when online questionnaires were not really a thing. So they were all paper questionnaires and we had to have them drop them off regularly so we could assess their risk. But um, our main finding was that actually for the multiple attempters, um, their, their course of suicide ideation displayed a lot more variability than the other groups. Mm -hmm. So um, lots more fluctuations and instability. Um, so that was kind of the main finding from that project. So one of the things that I really like about your work is that you take this interdisciplinary approach to it. So I'm wondering who are some of the other or who are some of the other types of professionals that you've worked with and what have you seen as the benefits of this type of work? Yeah, so um I I think most recently and and I think we're going to talk some more about my veterinary research but I've had the opportunity to work with um, one of my collaborators is a physician who also has his master's in public health. He works for the CDC, Dr. Randy Nett, um, and we've collaborated on a large national survey of veterinarians. And then right now we're working on um, a mortality analysis of veterinarians and other vet professionals who've died by suicide. And so it's been really 
wonderful working with him and getting more of that epidemiological public health perspective on um, even just things as simple as data analysis, ways of thinking about the problem, writing about the problem. Um, And then, of course, uh, neither Dr. Nett nor I are veterinarians ourselves, and so we've been sure to collaborate with other, with veterinarians who understand the problems in their field at a much deeper level than we can because we don't have that lived experience, really. So that's been very eye-opening. Um, and I'm, try- I'm trying to think of all the different types of professionals <laughs> I've worked with. Another example um, a collaborator of mine, Dr. Melissa Clark, who's an IO psychologist at the University of Georgia now, we've collaborated looking at occupational stressors in veterinarians, so taking more of an industrial organizational approach to understanding the unique factors that veterinarians are facing. Well, that's that's really interesting. To me, that's kind of a really ideal way to do have like the breadth and the depth to do this kind mm-hmm. of research, which... As we, we all know, doing suicide research in the first place is so challenging. So being able to connect with people who have different areas of knowledge and, and collaborate seems like such a promising and important way to do this type mm-hmm. of work. So yeah. you've, you've been doing a lot of research in the area of suicidal behaviors we've been talking about, and particularly on one aspect of a theory that we've talked about on this podcast before, um, and it's part of the interpersonal theory of suicide which uh, suggests that there are three factors present among people who die by suicide, feeling disconnected or like you don't belong, feeling like a burden, and then having the capability for suicide. Would you mind describing what's meant by that factor, capability for suicide, and how that led to your work in a veterinary professional population? Sure. Um, So the capability for suicide comes from Uh, Joiner's interpersonal theory. And the idea is that most people, even those who experience very intense desire to die by suicide, lack the fearlessness about death and uh, ability to withstand physical discomfort and pain that's necessary in order to enact a lethal suicide attempt. Um, And so for many people, that ends up being protective because despite this strong desire to die, they aren't able to enact that lethal attempt. So that was the aspect of the interpersonal theory that a lot of my work in graduate school was focused on. Um, And actually, when I started at Auburn, so this was back in 2010, uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, what's a unique uh, population or unique opportunity for me here in this institution where I can try to start a research program that's a little bit distinct from what I had been doing in grad school. And so I was kind of thinking through what was available on campus, and I noticed that there was a vet school. And I don't know if you all know this, but there are only uh, 30 vet schools in the whole country. I so there aren't a lot of them. Yeah, so they're also really competitive to get into for that reason. So not even every state has a vet school, and I had one right in my backyard. And so um, I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I I had known that there was an elevated suicide rate in physicians. We had read about that a lot and kind of discussed that throughout grad school as, you know, thinking through this acquired capability construct. And I thought, huh, I wonder if veterinarians have an increased risk for suicide. And it turned out that they they do. And at least the research that had been published at the time was suggesting that they had a greater risk for suicide even compared to physicians who themselves have elevated risk for suicide compared to the general population. And so I, I found that very intriguing and kind of puzzling and was reading through some of the work that had been done at that time and, and some early theorizing about it. And people were throwing out a lot of ideas for why veterinarians might be at elevated risk for suicide. And so um, they were discussing ideas like stress, isolation, mental illness, substance abuse, reluctance to seek help, just a lot of different factors that we know are associated with suicide risk. But thinking through all those ideas, I I still was wondering, 
whether those were a plausible explanation for why veterinarians would be at elevated risk for suicide compared to all these other people, including physicians. So it wasn't clear to me that all of those factors would be necessarily elevated in veterinarians. Um, so then I started thinking about the acquired capability aspect of the theory. Um, and that led me to think about the fact that veterinarians actually have much more frequent and direct exposure to death than physicians do. So uh, the average veterinarian performs about 8 to 12 euthanasia procedures per month. Um, and, of course, that's going to vary a lot depending on the, the practice specialty. Shelter vets, for example, um, do a lot more than that. But in contrast, the average general practitioner physician experiences about 20 patient deaths per year. Most of those are occurring in the hospital. And the big distinction is that they're not actively enacting death through something like euthanasia. Um, and so my initial hypothesis was that because veterinarians have this unique experience of frequently enacting death through the act of euthanasia, um, the concept of death becomes less scary to them. And perhaps coupled with the desire for suicide, that explains their elevated uh, suicide risk compared to even physicians. Um, so my first study that I did at Auburn, I collected data from a sample of vet students. We collected information about their experiences with euthanasia so far. Um, we collected information about um, their emotional distress related to euthanasia, and then also the degree of fearlessness they reported experiencing about their own death. Um, and what we found was that the more experience with euthanasia they had, the less distress they reported about euthanasia, and then um, in turn, the less fear they reported experiencing about their own death. So there was this indirect relationship and overall more euthanasia was associated with less fear about their own death. And a, a, one, um, some follow-up analyses that we did, we compared um, experience with euthanasia uh, among companion animals, so pet dogs and cats, to other types of animals like um, livestock, lab animals, that kind of thing. And we found that this relationship was specific to companion animals. Um, and we thought that, that that made a lot of sense given that companion animals kind of occupy this mental space between other animals and humans um, psychologically. And so ex the experience of euthanizing a companion animal may be much more potent or have a different impact than other types of animals. Um, and we also found that this effect was specific to experience with euthanasia. It did not apply to experience with surgeries or experience with necropsy. Necropsy is just the equivalent of an autopsy on an animal. So there was something special, or not special, but specific about euthanasia in companion animals that seemed to be at play. Well, so one thing that, and just in case any of our listeners aren't familiar, um, it it sounds like what what's going on here, consistent, which would be consistent with Joyner's theory, is that people are kind of losing their fear the more direct experience they have with it and habituating to it. And it's interesting because I, I think a lot in psychology, like we think about this knowledge that you're able to habituate things to things can be, or just get used to them basically, um, is useful in certain situations. If someone has a specific mm -hmm. phobia of a spider or of driving, if they repeatedly do that, then over time they'll get used to it. But it sounds like there's a flip side to that too, mm -hmm. particularly when people become suicidal. So if they don't become suicidal, it's, it, it may not be relevant, right? But if they are mm -hmm. suicidal and on top of it, they've got this reduced fear about enacting um, lethal injury, then it seems like that's where the real danger area is. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and really, I think you make a great point that there is something clearly adaptive for vet students and vet professionals to develop kind of an ability to cope with enacting euthanasia over time. If they were extremely distressed every time they did it, that would be extremely taxing. And and this is not to say that veterinarians, um, they, they do experience strong emotions, especially with certain animals that they um, perform euthanasia on. But there, yeah, there's something adaptive about that repeated exposure, but it could be a problem when combined with desire for suicide. Really interesting. And you had mentioned that um, in a previous conversation we had that some of the work that you've done was looking at uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer veterinarians. Would you mind saying Mm -hmm. a little bit about how that work came about? Yeah, sure. So um, this, and, and that study um, is a little bit, uh, I'm currently working on the analyses for some, some of it, but we, uh, I attended a veterinary wellness conference a couple years ago. So this was a round table. It was maybe 30 or 40 people who were interested in, in wellness issues among veterinarians. So it was mostly veterinarians and then some public health people and some mental health professionals. And we were going around the table talking about different studies that had been done so far, um, including a large national survey that I had done with Dr. Nett, who I mentioned earlier. And one of the, the people in attendance at the meeting, Dr. Mike Chaddock, um, pointed out that we didn't know anything about the mental health experiences of LGBTQ vet professionals. And I realized that we had made a huge error in conducting our our national survey and that we hadn't even asked questions about sexual orientation or gender identity. And so I really wanted to help remedy that problem. And and he said, you know, can somebody help us Um, can somebody conduct a study looking at this particular population and their experiences? And so I volunteered right away. I was very excited to get involved in it. Um, And so this study, we collected data from um, LGBTQ vet students, vet professionals. So that includes veterinarians, vet technicians, vet technologists, vet assistants um, in the U.S. and in the U.K., Uh, So we ended up with a sample of around 440 people who identify as LGBTQ and are vet students or vet professionals. So very unique uh, population. And some of the the issues that we were interested in looking at are the – there are different climate issues that are of concern in, in vet schools. So, for example, as I mentioned, there are only 30 vet schools in the whole country. And so when LGBTQ people apply to vet school, they might be moving to a place that's more conservative or less welcoming to uh, members of the LGBTQ population. So they have adjustments to make there. There's also just a huge cultural and climate shift going on within the vet profession where um, I think it was in the early 80s, 80% of the profession was male. Now it's 80 to 85% female. So you have a lot of older male, generally more conservative faculty interfacing with more diverse, younger um, students. And so there, there are issues that can arise from that. Um, and we we just collected information on a whole bunch of different factors, including how commonly um, vet students and vet professionals are experiencing uh, homophobic or transphobic remarks at school or work, um, percentage of them who reported experiencing difficulties at work or school related to their LGBTQ status and um, we're right now examining how all of those things are related to various mental health outcomes. As we know, kind of stepping back at the broader population, mm-hmm. that there are elevated suicidal ideation and attempt mm-hmm. rates within LG, the LGBTQ population. So I think 
that um, you can imagine. And a lot of that, right, has been attributed to things like you're talking about discrimination and stressors mm -hmm. that kind of elevate the risk for mm -hmm. mental health issues. So I, I, I'm excited to see how, hear how that turns out because it seems like it could be really meaningful for pointing out implications to how to better serve these students and how to be mm -hmm. aware of what the risk factors might be and just point to ways to prevent suicide within this population. Exactly. And, and beyond the students who there are clearly some, some issue, unique issues that, that students face, we're, we're also looking at professionals who are in a whole, who face a different set of challenges in that typical veterinarians working in a small business setting. Um, so they might be a single practice, practice owner. Um, and in a, that type of setting, it's not like you have an HR department where people can provide diversity training um, and there aren't, you know, support groups for LGBTQ identified people in the same way that those resources might be available in the vet school. Um, so what we're seeing is in the vet, among the vet students, um, they're more likely to be exposed to homophobic remarks, remarks, transphobic remarks. So kind of experiencing more informal but overt discrimination. Yet those students do have access to a lot of different policies and resources as part of the vet school. Whereas we see the reverse for professionals where they're not encountering as many of the that um, things like homophobic and transphobic remarks, but they don't have as many concrete resources given the setting. Does it look so far, I don't know if you've looked at this yet, like there are any mm -hmm. differences between the UK and US? Um, yeah, so we did do some regional um, comparisons. And so we not only compared the UK, uh, but we broke the US up into gosh, maybe six or seven different regions. Um, and I had expected that there would be huge differences between, say, the Southeast and the Pacific Northwest. Uh, but actually, for most of the factors that we looked at, there weren't regional differences. So there were no regional differences in the level of psychological distress experienced by the LGBTQ vet students and professionals, there were no differences in their likelihood of having experienced difficulties at school or work related to their sexual orientation or gender identity, no differences in homophobic remarks, no differences in the supportiveness of their workplace, although there were some differences in supportiveness of the, their school. Um, so honestly, we were quite surprised by the lack of regional differences and, and we counted the UK as one of the regions that we examined. Um, and I presented some of these data at um, the American Veterinary Medical Association conference this past summer uh, to, so I, I presented some of the results and had some really great discussions with audience members about why um, we didn't find the regional differences. And there were some thoughts about perhaps people have different kinds of ex expectations um, going into a vet school in Alabama versus California, and um, maybe there are more um, concrete acts of discrimination in the Southeast than in the, the Pacific, but people are kind of minimizing them a little bit more. Um, I, but honestly, yeah, I, I don't know exactly why we didn't find that many regional differences. Do you have a sense of, was it like most of the students had experienced some discrimination or what did the kind mm -hmm. of, what did it look like overall? Yeah. How common was it for them to experience transphobic or homophobic comments so, or other Yeah. Acts? So overall, when we asked the question, how um, have you ever experienced difficulties in school or professional settings related to your sexual orientation? Overall, that was... 37% of the sample, which is a lot. Um, and these were not all, th these were not minor things. Um, there were people who, because we asked a follow-up question where the, uh, we had an open-ended um, text box where they could write out what had happened. And so these were things like 
um, having job offers rescinded when their employer discovered that they were uh, lesbian, um, getting fired from their job for starting um, a tr- um, starting their transition, um, being non-consensually outed. So just lots of pretty horrific experiences for these folks. I'm wondering, maybe shift, shifting gears just slightly, what are other types of populations mm-hmm. that you've investigated suicide in, aside from veterinarians? Yeah, so um, I think one study that I'd be excited to talk about is a, a project that I did with Dr. Jill Holm Denoma, who also went to grad school with Katie and I. Um, I don't remember her lab role. Oh, gosh, I don't know. She probably something very important, much more important than printer monitor. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> she just kept everything going, I think. Um, so Jill and I were fortunate enough to receive some funding from the Military Suicide Research Consortium to do a taxometric study, which I'll briefly explain what that is, um, in a military population. So um, taxometric analyses are, um, it's actually a fairly old set of techniques. They were pioneered in the 70s by Neil. Um, And they're a set of analytic tools that can be used to examine whether a particular construct is dimensional in nature versus categorical. So something like height would be a dimensional construct you don't really have, there's not a qualitative difference between a tall and a short person. People vary in terms of degree. Whereas the the classic example of a uh, categorical construct would be um, two different animals, like a gopher and a chipmunk. You're either a gopher or a chipmunk. There's no goph monk or anything in between those two. (laughs) Um, So what we wanted to do was look at suicide risk, look at that construct and try to figure out whether it was categorical or dimensional in nature using taxometrics. So although it's really common when you're conducting a suicide risk assessment in a clinical setting to put people into categories like low, moderate and high risk, there wasn't any sort of empirical basis for doing so. So we didn't know if, if those categories were real things or whether people just vary in terms of uh, um, some sort of dimension. And it's not just an academic exercise to figure this out. In fact, there are really important implications for the measurement of a particular construct if you know that it's dimensional versus categorical. So something that's dimensional in nature, you need a lot of different questions. You need a very broad assessment to capture people across all levels of the continuum. Whereas for a categorical construct, you need a lot fewer items that are designed to distinguish at the boundary between the two categories. So if we were to determine that suicide risk is a categorical phenomenon, that would suggest that we could develop much briefer instruments that were targeted at separating people into groups that are empirically based um, rather than needing very broad, um, lengthy assessment instruments. So um, our sample consisted of about 1,700 individuals who are mostly military, a mix of Um, veterans and active duty. And um, we used a variety of indicators um, or variables in our taxometric analysis. So it included current suicidal ideation, current planning for a suicide attempt, lifetime worst point planning and behavior. So in your life, how, how severe has your suicidality gotten, essentially? How many suicide attempts people have had? the objective lethality of their most serious attempt, and current insomnia, which we know is a a pretty strong predictor of suicidality. And what we found was really clear, robust evidence of a taxon. Um, Jill and I actually, I had flown out to Denver for us to run these analyses, and this was the closest that I've ever come to having a eureka moment with an analysis that we ran. We, I mean, we had, it had been this whole journey getting the data cleaned and everything and all writing the grant, all this stuff. 
And we finally run the analysis and it was just clear as day. There were, there was no ambiguity across all these different indicators that we were seeing evidence of a taxon. And things are rarely taxa, right? That's the other interesting A lot of people say there really aren't any. I mean, and there are like uh, schizotypy is one um, that often is found to be taxonic. But yeah, if you look at across all the taxometric studies that have been done, most psychological constructs are dimensional. Um, And so we, you know, with those original indicators, we found this clear evidence of a taxon. We were just like, wow, this is, you know, fascinating, amazing. Um, And then we did follow up validity analyses, which is, um, that's best practice with taxometrics. So once you've grouped people into the two categories, then you want to use other variables that weren't used in the original analysis to try to um, unpack what the nature of this taxon is. Because we could have identified a taxon that was just, say, people with very high distress or something not specific to suicide. And so when we ran our follow-up analyses with these other variables, we found extremely large effect sizes for variables that um, are very relevant to suicidality, like we had another measure of suicide ideation that wasn't included in in our original battery. But we found much smaller effects for variables that were more indicative of general distress. So again, these follow-up analyses showed us, okay, we've got this categorical difference in our groups, and they differ very strongly on things related to suicide. They differ a little bit on things that aren't so related to suicide. We were really excited, but the huge limitation was that we didn't have a longitudinal follow-up. And um, so we weren't able to show that membership in this taxonic group is indicative of future risk for suicide or whether it's just an indication that you've been suicidal in the past, for example. And so... Um, I recently attended the American Association of Suicidology Conference, and I happened to get introduced to um, a Dr. Rufino who told me, and this was before the paper had been published, that she had replicated Jill's and my findings. And this was in a sample of about 2,400 psychiatric inpatients. These were civilians. Um... And they found the same very clear taxonic findings that we had found. And importantly, they actually had longitudinal data. So they were able to follow up their group for six months. And they found that that the people in that high-risk taxon were six times likelier than the other group to engage in suicidal behavior between baseline and the follow-up. Um, so our, our original paper was published in Psych Assessment, and this paper, this replication, was also published in Psych Assessment in 2018. Um, and again, this is the most excited I've ever been about someone else publishing a paper. Because, you know, Jill and I, we, we're still, we're wanting to follow up on these results, um, but we're having trouble identifying appropriate data sets. We also each had a baby between the time that published our original paper and now, mm-hmm. um, but I'm actually in, in the end, I'm actually very happy that the replication occurred outside of our group. So completely independently from us, I feel like it, I'm, I'm very proud to have a study that I was so excited about be replicated so soon after. Yeah, that, I mean, that's really the gold standard of someone completely independently being able to replicate your findings. I mean, even in a different sample, and it sounds like you weren't even involved other than they Mm -hmm. knew your design. And so that's, this is, um, it's nice when science goes this way and you get consistency across studies. It's more confusing when that doesn't happen. (laughs) So like you said, it has... Uh, yes. Clinical implications yeah. too for identifying high risk groups and 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 trying to understand how to help those most at risk for yes. attempting suicide. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for explaining that. I think I think taxometrics is so interesting. And is it taxometrics are interesting? That seems unusual. <laughs> I'll I'll look it up later and maybe re-edit it, but yeah. probably not. Um, 
that's the but that that explanation is really clear, and I think it shows the power of um, what science can do for helping. Even when you have a population that's very hard to study, but a very mm-hmm. serious public health problem. So, so one um, speaking of kind of uh, public health implications, another area of research that you and I have chatted a bit about it has focused. It sounds like on um, safety or uh, lethal means restriction, and I'm wondering what kind of research you've done on that kind of if you could tell us what that is and 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 what that means sure so in general when we're talking about means safety we're referring to limiting access to very lethal methods of suicide in the general population so a lot of attention has been paid to um, things like building barriers on bridges that are common locations for suicides Um, I I remember throughout graduate school, we were all talking about and concerned about the Golden Gate Bridge, which was a location um, that became notorious for um, people to die by suicide. And there was no barrier at the time, but now, fortunately, one has been built. Um, There's also been a lot of discussion about means safety in relation to firearms. Dr. Mike Anestis, who we also went to grad school with, has done a lot of really interesting work looking at um, how to communicate about safety related to firearms without um, turning off people who, um, you know, really want access to firearms for a variety of other reasons. Um, Now, one of the first things that you often hear when you start talking about means safety is, well, if you limit my access to one method, then I'm just going to use something else or people will just use some other method. And what the research shows actually is that people tend to be pretty specific about what method they're planning to use. And they, this may stem from that acquired capability idea that we talked about, that there may be a lot of mental rehearsal involved, a lot of knowledge about that particular method. And so limiting access to it, especially during a time of a crisis, um, can be life-saving in that people are relatively unlikely to choose a different method. And the other thing is that when we're talking about limiting access to very lethal suicide methods, even if method substitution occurs, they're more likely to choose a method that's less likely to kill them. So again, even though we don't see a lot of evidence for method substitution, if we limit access to very lethal methods, that can also be life-saving given that people tend to choose less lethal methods. So, for example, there you're talking about that if people try to overdose, they're more likely to survive than right. using a gun, There's more for opportunity example. for rescue. Um, and yes, yes, exactly that. Um, and so where this relates to my work, um, again, I'll return to my veterinary work. And right now, <clears throat> I, I have a paper that I'm working on with Dr. Randy Natt and others at the CDC, where we've used the National Violent Death Reporting System, which is a database that's been compiled. And for the years that we've used it, it includes data from 32 different states in the U.S. And it includes information from autopsy reports, um, medical examiner reports, death certificates, and police Uh, police reports for any violent death and suicide fits within that category. So we have access to this very rich database and one of the variables in there is occupation. So this data set includes every person in each of the 32 states who died by suicide during the years that, that are available. So it's a very large database And what we were able to do is take that database and identify the the people within it who were veterinary professionals. So veterinarians, vet technicians, vet technologists, and vet assistants. Um, And we, um, the database includes lots of detailed information about the circumstances surrounding each death. 
And what we were able to do for the first time was identify how often veterinarians who died by suicide were using pentobarbital, which is the substance that is most commonly used for euthanasia. And what we found is that um, the most common cause of death or method of suicide in the veterinarians was self-poisoning, which Katie might know this, um, or I'm sure she does, that in the U.S., generally, especially for men, the most common method for suicide is firearm. But in veterinarians, we see something different. We're seeing that they're more likely to overdose. Moreover, among those who overdose, the most common thing that they were overdosing on was pentobarbital. Um, and so we were we had kind of expected that, but we didn't expect the results to be that clear. And what we did was in the whole sample, we calculated standardized mortality ratios, which that's a statistic that gives you a sense of the elevated likelihood of suicide in veterinarians compared to the general population. And just like other studies, we found that um, the elevated, that they were at about double the risk for the, um, for suicide compared to the general population. However, when we removed the people from the sample who had used pentobarbital to die by suicide, the suicide rate was identical to the general population. And so what we're arguing, and this paper is currently under review by the CDC, they have to review it before we can submit it for publication, so it still needs to go through the peer review process, but um, we're arguing that this provides really strong evidence for the need for increased administrative controls on pentobarbital in veterinary practices, because we've got this clear evidence that the elevated suicide rate that we're seeing in veterinarians is largely, if not entirely, accounted for by the use of pentobarbital, which is a drug that's essentially only used um, in veterinary practices for euthanasia. Um, and interestingly, we did not see, so we had veterinary technicians in our sample and, and vet assistants and technologists. They did not use pentobarbital. So even though they were in that setting, the idea is they probably have less access to it. Um, and so this really seems specific to veterinarians. That's, that's really useful information. And the idea that you had a huge data set, as we know, is really important for something that's relatively rare, not rare enough, but for something like suicide. And part of what what is striking to me, and I wonder what your opinion is on this, I'm thinking about Klonsky and May's mm -hmm. three-step theory, where they talk about uh, capability for suicide, and one of the aspects of it is practical knowledge. And I'm wondering if you think that mm -hmm. knowing like the dosing that it takes to cause euthanasia actually makes like we were talking about self-poisoning, people usually, they're more likely to be able to be rescued because the body can withstand it or they're found. I wonder, do you think, are they using higher doses? Is there any way to know that? Or are they more precise in knowing what it well, takes to I cause mean, death? I definitely think that May and Klonsky's three-step theory is relevant to this and that practical knowledge is, I mean, I think that, that knowledge is clearly being used by the veterinarians who have died by suicide using this method. And anecdotally, when I've talked about these findings to veterinarians, I, I in, in having just kind of casual conversations, I hear a lot, well, yeah, I know exactly what I would need to do if it came down to it. And um, it, because of that, the small business setting in which many veterinarians work, which I mentioned earlier, um, there aren't as many formalized controls or monitoring systems over the medications that are being used in the same way as you would see in like a, a human hospital. Um, so the challenge is going to be figuring out how to increase administrative control, how to engage in means safety with veterinarians without getting in the way of what they need to do for their jobs. But one one follow-up analysis we did was just looking at, you know, where were these suicides happening? Were people dying by suicide in their clinics? But the vast majority of them died by suicide at home. So they were taking the, 
the pentobarbital presumably out of the clinic or having it shipped directly to them, which I, I think is possible in some states, um, and dying by suicide at home. I'm so glad you shared all of your work with us today. I mean, this has been a really fascinating and important discussion. I'm wondering if you have any closing thoughts or take-home messages that you would like to kind of summarize. Gosh. Well, I've really enjoyed the chance to kind of reflect on the work that I've been doing over the past several years. And um, my closing thoughts are just um, for people out there who are in academia or in the mental health field and, and trying to get involved in research, um, just to be open-minded to and open to different opportunities that present themselves. I never anticipated doing this amount of work in the veterinary population. I kind of fell into it, and it's become a really important aspect of my professional identity and a really meaningful part of my work. And um, so I'm just kind of glad that I followed the, um, the opportunities that were available to me at the time. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah, thank you so much, Tracy. I'm wondering where can people find out more about you or your work? Probably the most centralized location for information about me can be found on my Auburn University faculty profile page. So if you just Google Auburn University Psychology Tracy Witte, should take you right there, and that provides a link to my Google Scholar page, my lab website, and has some representative publications of mine. Fantastic. And we'll make sure to link to that oh, in great. the show notes, too. Thank you so much for your time today, Tracy. It's it's always great talking to you, and it's just really exciting to hear about the meaningful scientific work that you've been doing and kind of your journey through all of that. I think sometimes it can be mysterious how people end up doing the type of research they're doing, so it's really neat to hear the backstory. Yes, thank you stuff. so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to both of you and um, getting to reminisce about my time as printer monitor <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you so much tracy and thanks everyone who listened in and we'll be back again in a couple weeks thank you for listening to the jedi council podcast a member of the geek therapy podcast network you can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com if you would like to support the jedi council podcast please check out our patreon page at www.patreon.com slash jedi council the views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.